Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Frank Bruni. I'm Ross Douthat. And this is The Argument. Today on the show, it's Veepstakes, where Michelle and Frank go to bat for their top Biden VP picks, and I get to watch or listen. And then we're going to talk about some weird stuff going on at the Supreme Court. It's supposed to be a co-equal branch of government. So why do the judges keep taking over for Congress? I think the right thing to do right now, and I told this to uh, Vice President Biden, uh, is to put a woman of color on the ticket as the next vice president of our country. All I know is that Joe Biden needs to win. And I Last think, week, uh, Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar win. withdrew her name from Joe Biden's list of possible VP picks and urged the Democratic nominee to choose a woman of color as his running mate. Biden has already pledged to pick a woman, but he hasn't gotten more specific. And the field of possibilities remains pretty big. Kamala Harris, Val Demings, Gretchen Whitmer, Susan Rice, Elizabeth Warren, the list goes on. So who should he pick? Who's the person most likely to help him win the presidency? To answer this question, we'll pit my co-hosts against each other, and then maybe I'll weigh in. Michelle, let's start with you. Who's your pick and why? So it won't surprise listeners of this show that I'm hoping that Joe Biden picks Elizabeth Warren, um, who, full disclosure, my husband consulted on Warren's presidential campaign. And I'm hoping that he picks her for both electoral reasons and um, substantive governing reasons. You know, she is the favorite of progressives. She's the favorite of young people in polling. She's the favorite of young black people in polling. She's the favorite of a lot of the parts of the Democratic Party that felt most disappointed with how things played out and with um, Joe Biden getting the nomination. People whose enthusiasm is going to be really, really important in November. And so it's going to be important to get young people like excited and enthused and Warren gives them something to be excited about. You know, even if you if you look on Twitter, you might think that the Bernie Sanders movement hates Elizabeth Warren because there's still a lot of bad blood among some of his high profile surrogates. But in polls, Bernie supporters want Warren to be the vice president, as do, you know, like I said, other groups of the progressive base. But beyond that, Biden is coming into office inheriting these historic crises, these historic overlapping crises, and he's going to need a governing partner. And he's talking about, you know, kind of needing a New Deal sized presidency, kind of New Deal sized programs to address all of these overlapping catastrophes. And just nobody has thought more clearly about how you do that and how you do that within the constraints of a gridlocked government than Elizabeth Warren. And so I just think she she vastly increases the chances that Joe Biden's presidency would be successful. All right, Frank, tell us why Michelle is wrong 
and the perfect candidate is somebody entirely different. <laughs> I would never say flatly that Michelle is wrong. I would say I have a difference of opinion with her here. You know, she talks in a compelling way about Elizabeth Warren as a governing pick is one of the phrases that's used for that kind of thing. I think only one thing matters in 2020, and it is making sure there are not four more years for Donald Trump. So I'm thinking of this completely and totally in strategic terms. And while Elizabeth Warren is someone who has some promise in turning out progressives, there's the question of whether you lose a bunch of white working class voters, especially in key states, for every voter she brings in. My pick I think a better one in those regards is Senator Tammy Duckworth of Illinois. I think of several things, but right now I'll just focus on a few. She has an amazing, amazing, inspiring personal story that I think will resonate with voters at a time when people really want to feel good about politicians and politics in a way they haven't in a long time. Um, She's an Asian American, Thai American, to be specific. She is an Iraq war veteran uh, who lost both of her legs during her combat service as a helicopter pilot and speaks of this with such humility and such grace. She is a mother of two children under the age of six. You want to talk about relatable with voters. She and her husband are an economically humble couple. She is someone also who I think would be impossible for Trump and the Republicans to campaign against. Trump is only comfortable when he is mocking and insulting people, and his relationship with Elizabeth Warren, and we're not going to get into the nickname that he calls her, is a great example of that. He will be comfortable campaigning against a ticket that includes Elizabeth Warren. He won't know what to do with Tammy Duckworth, who has a purple heart, who interestingly coined the term cadet bone spurs for him. So he's going to stand there, sit there, whatever, tongue-tied about how to talk about this half of the Democratic ticket, while she brings the case to him uh, in a very, very winning way. I think she'd be an extraordinary pick. I love Tammy Duckworth, so I'm not going to argue against her. I would argue against the idea that we can sort of project into the minds of white working class voters what will and won't resonate with them. And I think that in the past, when particularly people like us have tried to do that, we have gone really wide of the mark, right? I mean, I remember when Democrats decided that there was no way George W. Bush, a draft dodger, was going to be able to campaign effectively against war hero John Kerry. You know, they found a way. I remember when people thought that it would be very hard to smear Max Cleland, the former senator, triple amputee, you know, as some sort of terrorist apologist. They did that. And so I'm reluctant to think about this choice as sort of like four-dimensional chess in terms of what sort of attack ads they will be able to gin up, right? There is no bottom to what they will say about any candidate. And obviously, Tammy Duckworth's service to her country is going to mean you know, precisely nothing to the people who are making attack ads for Donald Trump. I also think there's something to be said for a candidate who's already run for president. So we have some idea of how they perform under that spotlight. And, you know, again, I don't, doubt that Tammy Duckworth is up to the job. And if he picks her, it seems to me like a great idea. I accept your argument that defeating Trump is so important that electoral concerns should trump those. Joe Biden is there to appeal to 
you know, white people in the Midwest and white people in swing states, right? That's substantially why a lot of Democratic primary voters picked him. And so, I mean, we obviously have to worry about those people, but where he has real weakness, where he really needs to balance the ticket is among young progressives. Let me, let me just quickly push back on, on two things. Yes, do it, uh, in, do it. In a, in a collegial and friendly way. One is, yes, Elizabeth Warren has already run for president, and it didn't turn out so well. Now, I have enormous respect for her, and I think she has given more thought to the problems that face this nation and how to solve them than probably anyone we're going to discuss today. But at the end of the day, she was not able to translate that into the kind of excitement among voters that would validate her choices as running mate. She came in third in the Democratic primary in Massachusetts. No, you're right. Although if you look at the polling of people being asked, if you could just choose who was going to be president as opposed to who was going to be the nominee, who would you pick? Then Elizabeth Warren does a lot better, right? So she suffered a lot from people who liked her the best, but have been traumatized by 2016, didn't believe that a woman could beat Donald Trump, you know, wanted the safest possible candidate. She's still in polls, the most popular with Democrats of all the people who are being considered for vice president. One thing we haven't mentioned that I think we have to about Elizabeth Warren before we move on. She's 70. Joe Biden is 77. Joe Biden would be 78 on inauguration day, the oldest president ever. Well, Elizabeth Warren has actually shown quite a bit of appeal to younger voters, voters of color. That's a whole other story. There is something to me, unideal and potentially not a great idea, about having a Democratic ticket in particular of two people in their 70s. It goes against the Democratic Party's brand. It goes against when they've had the most success in presidential elections with candidates like Bill Clinton, with candidates like Barack Obama, who are a lot younger. It feels to me like a real risk to put out a Democratic ticket, a ticket for the party that's about youth and optimism and change, that has a 70-year-old and a 77-year-old on it. Working off Frank's last point, that sort of the image of a ticket of two older candidates isn't ideal for the Democrats, both of you are suggesting candidates who have many virtues but are not African-American. And I think while Amy Klobuchar in her comment did say, you know, woman of color and Tammy Duckworth is Asian-American. I think the assumption is that she was suggesting that given the Black Lives Matter moment, the protests, everything that's going on within America and within liberalism, that there's some kind of an obligation for Joe Biden to pick an African-American running mate. And I think you can see that in the rumors around his campaign right now. There's a lot of talk about Kamala Harris, Val Demings, and Susan Rice as frontrunners. So, What do you guys think of that challenge to each of your preferred candidates? To me, that's the most significant challenge. There was a lot to be said for him having a black woman running mate before this moment. And now with everything that's going on, it seems even more urgent. I'm not sure how strong the electoral case is for that. There's a piece in 538 about the arguments that people are making on behalf of various vice presidential candidates that's a little bit skeptical about the electoral arguments that having a black woman on the ticket would boost black turnout. The data seems to be mixed about that. Maybe more significant is the representational argument, just that it's it's time. But, you know, all of these women are obviously not interchangeable. And so I think, you know, rather than just make a case for 
a black woman, there's cases to be made for specific black women, right? And so each of these candidates has things that make them formidable and things that make them less so, right? Like I'm a huge, huge, huge Stacey Abrams fan and yet really worry about having someone on the ticket who, you know, I think won the Georgia governor's race and was cheated out of it. But the fact remains that she didn't serve as governor, doesn't have executive experience and is stepping into a role when because of Joe Biden's age, she could end up being called on to be president almost immediately. So in that respect, I see more of an argument for Kamala Harris. But then I really like Kamala Harris and like Tammy Duckworth. I would be delighted if Kamala Harris is on the ticket. But think about one of her big weak spots when she was running for president. People were saying Kamala is a cop and she was being, um, you know, she was attacked a lot on her criminal justice background. So I think it's possible to see that in this environment as being a real liability. What what about the argument, um, which I think is closer to Michelle's take here, that vice presidential picks for all that we obsess over them rarely actually have a strong effect on the election? That like how Joe Biden performs in the fall debates is, for instance, is going to be much more important than who he picks as his running mate. And given Biden's advanced age and, you know, I think a little bit at least of deterioration in his public speechifying, isn't this a vice presidential pick that's closer to picking another president or a co-president or a future president than most picks? Do you guys think that's fair? I think that's fair. Although, you know, even if vice presidential picks don't have a large effect, right, this election will likely be won around the margins. And because there's some question as to how Joe Biden is sort of identifying and positioning himself, I mean, it's this very interesting phenomenon where he sort of ran to the center during the primary and has moved left since winning the nomination, which is just something that doesn't usually happen. Picking Elizabeth Warren would signal to people that that move is sincere and that when he talks about governing in a kind of New Deal fashion, that he's serious. But yeah, I do agree with you that, you know, whoever he picks is extremely likely to be the candidate in 2024. I think the fact that Biden could be a one-term president has changed the Veep Stacks profoundly to the extent that you see people auditioning for this job, for lack of a different term, more aggressively than I can remember in previous presidential cycles. And I think that's because all of those women under consideration understand that because of Joe Biden's age, whoever is his vice president might be the Democratic nominee in four years rather than in eight years, might quickly become the de facto leader of the party. And that, I think, has made the job of vice president triply, if not quadruply appealing to the people who are in contention for it. I don't think that voters who tend to do this more emotionally than in a hyper-intellectual fashion are going to say, I've got to look at this vice presidential pick in a different way than I did in previous years because of his age, because maybe this person um, is going to be the Democratic candidate in 2024. I don't think they'll go through all of those hoops. I agree that the vice presidential choice usually matters way, way less than those of us who are in the business of churning out copy right. and opinions <laughs> make it seem. But going back to what I view as the stakes of this election, going back to the fact that, that I think it is do or die for this country that Trump 
Pence not get another four years, I think you have to assume as you go into this pick that it could be the difference. Because if at the margins, as Michelle said, it made the barest difference, and that barest difference was a win-loss difference, well, you've got a plan for that. So let me let me now, just before we wrap up, throw out my own sort of wild card pick, which is not someone he's actually going to pick um, because it's not a woman. But I've been struck by uh, the sort of the mood on the left and sort of the the centering of urban politics at the moment by what a strong vice presidential candidate Cory Booker would make at this moment. And I'm curious what you guys think about that. It seems to me that Booker is someone who has, you know, he's African-American, obviously. He was mayor of Newark, a successful mayor, a city that has weathered the current era of protest a lot better than a lot of other cities. Um, He has a sort of mixed appeal to left and center with sort of records that can play to either side. He didn't win the primary, obviously, but I think he came through it better liked by just about everybody than um, Harris did. And so I'm wondering if in deciding for understandable reasons to say he was going to pick a woman, Joe Biden preemptively deprived himself of the guy who would have been the right choice for the political moment we've ended up living in right now. What do you guys think of that? I think there's something to that. I mean, I wrote a piece during the general election saying, you know, why not Cory Booker, right? That if voters wanted somebody who was more centrist than Bernie or Warren, that Booker was really the person they should look to, right? He has this history of executive experience. I mean, he brings a lot to the table, but I think that you're right that Biden has preemptively narrowed the field. That said, I think it was a good call at the time when he was asked if he would make this pledge and he did. And so, you know, and there's no shortage of really compelling choices. Ross, I think you're right that Cory Booker uh, would have been a very, very compelling choice. Uh, But I do think Biden did the right thing, not just at the time, but forevermore in terms of saying, you know what, I'm going to choose a woman this time. I think putting a woman on the ticket makes sense in all sorts of ways. I think it still leaves him with uh, an enormous range of choices, as you can see if you look at the list. You know, Ross, I thought you were going to ask us, I thought you were going to make Michelle and I really go out on a limb and ask us not just who we wanted, which we've told you, but if we had to place a bet who we think Joe Biden will pick. But maybe I'll start by asking you that, and then you can turn it around, huh? I mean, I think he's going to pick Kamala. Um, I think that she, in spite of the issues on criminal justice, I think I think the campaign's assumption will be that she is the safest, most vetted um, African-American female candidate um, and that she was always sort of a natural pick for him in certain ways, which is boring, which is why I brought up Cory Booker. Actually, a Kamala Harris nomination would not be boring. It would be really exciting for a lot of people. And there are a lot of people who love her. I mean, if you ever run afoul of the K-Hive on Twitter, you will quickly learn that she has a pretty fanatical base of her own. <laughs> I, I only meant boring in the sense of being something that we could see coming a long time ago. So, all right, both of you, who will he pick? I think the same thing. I mean, if I had to bet, I would bet on Kamala. And sadly, for a show called The Argument, what we have here is the unanimity or the consensus. I think he'll pick Kamala, too. And honestly, if I weren't recommending Tammy Duckworth, she would be my second choice in terms of my personal recommendation. And I think in both of them, what's important to note, and we haven't said this about some of the other contenders, 
um, is if you're trying to play a safe game, you know, if you're trying to make sure also that you're consistent with your own argument that you don't want the nation to take a risk after having taken such a risk on Trump. And that is a big part of Joe Biden's argument. You know, look at me. I'm I'm tested. I'm I'm, I'm conventionally competent, all those things. I think choosing someone who's in the Senate like Kamala or like Tammy Duckworth makes more sense than choosing, say, a mayor or someone who's never been above the status of state lawmaker. I just think it is a it is a more prudent and a safer way to go. I think that's absolutely right. But it will be quite something at a certain level if Joe Biden's running mate is someone who was arguably beaten decisively in the Democratic primary because she was too far to the right on criminal justice. Again, I don't think that will prevent her from being picked, but it will be kind of a remarkable turn given the kind of debates and arguments we've been having in the country and that liberals certainly have been arguing for the last month. So we'll leave it there and we'll be right back to talk about the Supreme Court. This podcast is supported by WISE, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. Dining in dollars? Doing business in bot. Wherever life takes you, the WISE account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast. WISE is the easy way to connect all your finances internationally. Freelancing in France? No problem. Sending money back to mom? Simple. All without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Join 16 million customers and learn how the WISE account could work for you by visiting wise.com slash NYT. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love spelling bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. And we're back. I'm going to take the lead from here, and we will let Michelle go get on with the rest of her day. In her place, we've invited our colleague, Jesse Wegman. Hi, Jesse. Hey, Frank. How are you? Great. It's great to have you here. Jesse writes about the Supreme Court and legal issues for the Times editorial board. He's also written a book about abolishing the Electoral College. And he's a big proponent of killing the filibuster. In fact, don't get him started about Mitch McConnell stealing a Supreme Court seat from Barack Obama. We asked Jesse here to talk with us about SCOTUS, and we're going to start with two recent big decisions about LGBT workplace rights and about the Dreamers Act, or DACA. A lot of people were surprised given the court's conservative majority, Jesse. Were you surprised by these decisions? Uh, not as much as I think most people were. I, I, I anticipated the LGBT ruling, um, less so the uh, immigration ruling. But I think it helps to go back and refresh our memories about what these two cases are about to understand why they maybe aren't as surprising or as predictive as as some people think they might be. The first ruling on the LGBTQ rights held that a federal civil rights law prohibits employers from firing workers for being gay or transgender. The plaintiffs uh, sued under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits discrimination in the workplace on the basis of, among other things, sex. So what does sex refer to? The employers who had fired these workers argued, and several of the conservative justices on the court agreed, that it could only possibly refer to men and women in their capacity as men and women. Uh, This is how lawmakers thought about it in 1964. That's clear. And it 
couldn't be thought of in any other way. But of course, that can't be true because over the years, the Supreme Court has expanded Title VII to cover all kinds of situations that those original lawmakers wouldn't have thought of. For example, male-on-male sexual harassment is covered under Title VII. It's prohibited uh, under Title VII. That certainly wasn't a thing the law paid attention to in 1964. So the question here was, does sex refer to sexual orientation and gender identity. Six justices said that it did. And that opinion, the majority opinion for the court, was written by not some bleeding heart liberal, but by the rock-ribbed conservative Neil Gorsuch. Gorsuch famously adheres to an interpretive approach known as textualism. Uh, And that means when you're reading a statute, the plain words of the statute control. And as he pointed out, obviously, you cannot talk about sexual orientation or gender identity without talking about sex. So there you have it. Jesse, did that reasoning surprise you? I mean, would you have ever predicted that Neil Gorsuch would come up with that interpretation of quote unquote textualism? Yes, uh, I think that was that was actually from the beginning what people thought was one of the more likely outcomes of this case was that Justice Gorsuch would join with the liberals. I think the small surprise in this case was that Chief Justice John Roberts also joined. He didn't write separately, so we don't know what his thinking was, but he has been on the other side of gay rights cases since he's been on the court. Now, you know, conservatives generally were apoplectic over this ruling, saying it's the end of the conservative legal movement, if not of the world itself. I think that's an overstatement in the extreme. This court has had a majority of Republican appointed justices for about a half a century now, and it is more solidly conservative than it has been since the 1930s. The liberals on the court are older on average than the conservatives. And really, you know, when you look at this opinion, Justice Gorsuch's decision was purely about a single word, sex. It was not about equality or dignity of of gay and transgender people as it would have been had it been written by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who is no longer on the court, but who wrote all of the court's gay rights decisions uh, before this one. In fact, it was actually Justice Kavanaugh, one of the other conservative justices who dissented from the ruling, uh, but ended with a a gracious note, I would say, congratulating gay and transgender people for winning this victory, who really said anything (laughs) about gay uh, and transgender dignity. You know, it was not Justice Gorsuch himself. I'm laughing, Jessica, like you don't want us to have our rights, but, but you want to congratulate us and let us know how nice you feel about us. Thank you, Justice Kavanaugh. Now, Jesse, you mentioned conservative apoplexy, a great phrase. It was intensified by the other Supreme Court decision that we're going to talk about. Explain that decision for our listeners. So that case involved an executive order, which we refer to as DACA, which is Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And that's a fancy administrative language to say that people who were brought to America as children by undocumented immigrant parents and therefore are not citizens, but came here through no fault of their own and broke the law through no fault of their own, were allowed to stay without fear of being immediately deported. There's about 650,000, 700,000 of them. It's a lot of people. And it very much angered, I would say, for lack of a better term, the white revanchist base that Trump (laughs) relies on for his electoral success. You know, he had promised to end it. He said he would wind it down. And the problem is, it's a very popular program. It has support like in the 80th percentile, somewhere around there. You know, there's nothing in this country that that many people agree about. But, you know, they're dreamers, as they're called. These young people who, who are brought here as children are an extremely sympathetic group. And Donald Trump knows that. He, is, he said it himself. So he was in a tough position, right? He wants to satisfy his angry white base, but he doesn't want the political blowback 
of shutting down a popular program. So what do they do? They try to thread the needle and say, well, we're not shutting it down. We're saying that President Obama didn't have the authority to issue this order in the first place. He exceeded his legal authority. That was their entire argument. And the court ruled in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts that that wasn't enough. Uh, the administration had failed to provide a, a reasoned explanation for its decision. Now, once again, as with the LGBT case, this was not an emphatic victory that liberals might have thought it was. It's it's good, obviously, for the dreamers because they get protected for a couple of more years. But essentially, it's a function of how bad the Trump administration is at governing that Chief Justice Roberts would say, you can't even do what you're trying to do right. And so he gave them more opportunities to go back. They can technically the uh, Trump administration can go back and come up with a better explanation. Uh, realistically, that's not going to happen before the November elections. So even if not emphatic victories for liberals, these were certainly defeats, temporary or otherwise, for President Trump. But Ross, you think these are defeats in a larger sense. You see something going on here that's about the court's trajectory and role over time that concerns you greatly. Can you talk about that? Sure. And I mean, first, Jesse, thanks so much for joining us. Um, and uh, I think you're totally wrong um, about, <laughs> about, the, about the conservative legal movement. or the, I think the conservative reaction to this decision was less apoplexy and more weary resignation. I don't know. Did you read Twitter? <laughs> well, if you're reading Twitter, it's all apoplexy all the time. I'm just That's I'm right. I'm talking about, you know, the the top secret conversations in the in the layers of legal conservatives. But but Oh, sorry. Fair enough. I am not privy to Not those. not yet. We'll indoctrinate you later. But the <laughs> independent of sort of specific theories of interpretation, the animating force, the political force behind the conservative legal movement going back 50 years really now, has been the view that unelected judges, justices of the Supreme Court, are taking it upon themselves to effectively rule on and settle um, what we call culture war issues, social issue debates, um, rather than leave them to the democratic process. So really, this goes back well before Roe versus Wade. It goes all the way back to the school prayer rulings in the 1940s and 50s. But obviously, it continues with um, rulings on abortion, rulings on same-sex marriage, all the way down to the present day. And again and again, what's happened, and it happened with Anthony Kennedy, and now it's happened again with Neil Gorsuch, is that the you know Republican appointees put in a position to rule on contested culture war questions, decide to set themselves up as the arbiters of the controversy rather than leaving it to the democratic process to work out. And so in that sense, given that pattern, it's not particularly surprising that Neil Gorsuch came up with a totally absurd textualist explanation for why the word sex actually means sexual orientation. It's part of a larger pattern, one that extends, I should say, beyond culture war cases. This is a big story that encompasses all kinds of other debates, sometimes debates where liberals are more on the losing side, where the Supreme Court has basically increased its powers dramatically as Congress has ceased legislating and has sort of deferred to the Supreme Court, which you saw in this case. Republicans in the Senate were very happy to have this decision because it means that they don't actually have to sit down and work out the hard questions of if you pass national anti-discrimination protections, what are the implications for transgender athletes and youth sports? What are the implications for religious institutions hirings? These are all the kinds of questions that in a healthy democracy, 
legislators would address. In our democracy, Gorsuch issues this ruling and then says, well, I haven't addressed any of these other questions, so why don't you file a bunch more lawsuits and I'll tell you who wins and loses in those? I mean, that's literally what the ruling comes down to. There's a general sense among conservatives that, you know, the country supports anti-discrimination protections for gays and lesbians. I think the hard questions around this issue are the ones that Gorsuch didn't take up, which is what does it mean when those rights conflict with religious liberty? What does it mean for single-sex institutions? There's a whole range of these questions. But the bottom line is where the conservative legal movement has failed is in its quest to have a Supreme Court that leaves culture war battles to legislatures, to states, to Congress. That's the failure. It's not that there aren't Republicans on the bench. Obviously, there are. But the whole purpose, the whole multi-decade push has just ended up once again with a Republican-appointed justice saying, don't worry, kids, I'm going to tell you how this culture war controversy is going to turn out. Ross, I want to ask you this question, but then I want to get Jesse's response to it, too. You mentioned, I think accurately, that Congress has ceased to legislate. We basically have a void there. And I would add to that that Congress, <laughs> the current Congress, uh, due to a whole bunch of forces we could spend many shows talking about, uh, doesn't do a great job often of reflecting where the American public is and what the American public has learned and how it's evolved. Given that void, is it such a terrible thing that the Supreme Court has stepped into it, has stepped up? Why isn't this evolution of the court appropriate for this moment in time when Congress is, as I said, a kind of void? Well, I mean, it might be appropriate for the time in the sense that, you know, maybe it was appropriate when Caesar Augustus did away with senatorial powers because the Roman Senate had ceased to govern the <laughs> Roman Republic going on 150 years, right? I mean, that's, that's I'm, I'm being sort of deliberately overstated, but the historical reality is, yes, power abhors a vacuum. If a Republican institution doesn't fulfill its duties, some other force or institution will take up that power. But the design of our system is supposed to leave substantial powers in the hands of an elected legislature. And so it is a bit of a problem for the idea of the American Republic if policy is increasingly negotiated between the executive branch and the courts. And you can see that in the other case we're talking about here, right, where you know, the reason we don't have a enduring settlement on DACA is that Congress didn't come up with one. Barack Obama decided to preempt Congress, creating a debate about whether um, his move was constitutional. Then Donald Trump elected, tried to undo what Obama did. And then the court came up with somewhat convoluted reasons to say, not so fast, you know, let's let's postpone this through the next election, basically. Again, it's negotiation between justices appointed by the president and the executive branch. And it, that's a political system. It's just not the one that we're taught about in civics class, if, if there are civics classes anymore. Jesse, do you agree with Ross that the court is usurping its bounds? And do you share his concern about that, if so? Well, first, let me just say, uh, Ross, you mentioned that I had perhaps overstated the conservative unhappiness, but uh, you did invoke the fall of Rome. <laughs> so <laughs> I have I have one up. I've one up myself. Touche. Yep, touche. <laughs> so I, I'll say this. I absolutely I wouldn't use the term usurp, but I would I certainly agree with Ross that the court is stepping into a vacuum that has been left by Congress. And, you know, to be fair, the executive is also stepping into that vacuum. Absolutely. Some of the results are not uh, as concerning as some of the results are much more concerning. And I think we're right to be asking these questions. 
questions. I would say this is not new. This is not a feature of the current Congress, although the current Congress is particularly derelict in its duties. Um, you know, de Tocqueville said this 200 years ago, there's hardly any political question in the United States that sooner or later does not turn into a judicial question. Uh, so this is this is something that, that the court's centrality to our policy debates has always been there and it's always been debated. And I would say the separation of powers itself is really it is an ongoing project. It is a it is a journey, not a destination, right? There's always going to be push and pull among the branches over who has what power and who can step in when somebody else doesn't wield their power. I think that will that will be with us until the end, whether the end is, you know, in November or in another 200 years. So I do agree with Ross in the bigger picture that this is happening right now. So, I mean, the extent to which this court will go in both directions, I think, to take powers uh, that pr- may, may more appropriately be left with Congress is remarkable. I think that's right. I mean, I, I think that what you see, particularly with John Roberts, is a sense of himself as managing the court's credibility, but also of himself as a policymaker. And I think that, you know, if you read his decision, he sounds like a legislator making a sort of argument for why changing conditions have changed the need for this law that's not ultimately a constitutional argument. You can see the same thing in Obamacare, where basically he had four justices who wanted to strike down Obamacare, and Roberts decided to save it by rewriting it, you know, declaring the mandate a tax, changing the met. I mean, we, we have we've changed the Medicaid provisions in Obamacare because of John Roberts say so. This is not just a left wing phenomenon. What it is, though, is the pattern with culture war controversies in particular is that there always seems to be a Republican appointee, whether it's Anthony Kennedy or now Gorsuch, who wants to sort of take the issue into his own hands and sort of finesse a national compromise. And that, I do think, is novel. That If you go back and look at the culture wars of the 19th century, the culture wars of the early 20th century, certainly the courts were involved throughout. But you have a long pattern of hard-fought constitutional amendments getting passed. The fact that we're having this argument at all, we're having an argument about a portion of the Civil Rights Act that was itself passed as part of a long legislative battle. And you know, there just isn't that equivalent today. We don't have constitutional amendments. No one can imagine passing them. And Congress doesn't want to make difficult choices on culture war issues if the court is willing to take them off its hands. You two essentially agree uh, that the court is seizing powers or a kind of role that it hasn't always done in the past. Assuming Congress doesn't rouse itself from its stupor or break free of its partisan gridlock, is there any remedy any any pushback, anything one can do uh, to reverse this trend in the court or to uh, to make sure that it doesn't go further in this direction. I mean, I think Ross makes an excellent point about uh, the chief justice who who does find himself often in a bind, and I think some of that is an artifact of his position as chief. Uh, and I think he considers himself to be more of a guardian of the court as an institution than he might were he only an associate justice. I think he probably would be coming further from the right if he were only an associate justice. Uh, but, um, you know, it, it's true that when you have uh, when you have justices trying to make policy, you're going to get, you know, bad case law <laughs> or, or confusing rulings or vaporous language that nobody knows how to apply in a future case. But so what's the, what's the correction of that? How, how, do we, how do we get away from judges making policy then? 
Well, you kill the filibuster for one thing, and then Congress can pass more laws because the Senate is where, you know, what is it? The Senate is the graveyard of of legislation. So, you know, if you have a Senate that can actually be empowered to pass more laws, then you get more laws passed and and you don't have the Supreme Court making policy on the side. I look at this from much more of a a distance and and way less of a sophisticated and granular way than the two of you. And I see a sort of broken Congress. I see a sort of broken system in a lot of ways that have turned this Congress into somewhat of a joke when it comes to addressing the nation's needs and when it comes to reflecting the nation's needs. And so some so much of what we're talking about in terms of the court may not be how it was originally envisioned, uh, what it was originally designed for. But in certain instances, and I would argue both decisions last week fit into this category, in certain instances, I think it's... <laughs> performing a a vital life-saving role, life-saving in terms of the democracy and in terms of a a system of government that is often broken these days. Is that such a crazy thought to have, Ross? My comparison to the fall of the Roman Republic obviously sounded apocalyptic, but I do think that there are arguments, certainly that when systems decay, uh, power has to be exercised, and where it needs to be exercised, the institutions capable of exercising it will do so, you know, no matter what people wringing their hands about constitutional niceties may think. Um, I mean, that's sort of my basic my basic view of the situation, which is why I use the phrase weary resignation rather than apoplexy. I do think, though, that there is a pattern here that does not begin with the decay of Congress over the last 20 years, that it actually begins with court decisions that only social conservatives opposed, um, that clearly overrode democratic lawmaking, and that that beginning is more important in the long run to understanding the court's peculiar role right now than the particular decisions of Mitch McConnell. But it it might well be that when the filibuster goes, and I expect that it will go at some point in the next four to eight years, you will have some sort of congressional reassertion. I guess I just also think, though, that Congress has sort of trained itself not to want to touch some of these issues. And that, I do think, is a very unhealthy thing for democracy. It's very unhealthy that congressmen are comfortable writing laws about the budget, but not writing laws about gay rights or abortion. And I think, you know, and I I mean, I think that there is no better way to work out a contested issue. Like, if you have sort of guaranteed civil rights not to be fired or, you know, in, in hiring for gays and lesbians, what does that mean for Catholic adoption agencies and so on? I mean, this, this is a case that the court will probably take up next term. I think in a healthy society, that would be, or a healthy democratic society, which we're supposed to be, that would be the kind of question that requires debate and compromise that a legislature would handle. And, you know, it's just, it, tells us something about where we are, I think, that Neil Gorsuch is going to handle it for us. And I say that thinking that he may rule on my side of the argument, right? I think it's totally possible that Gorsuch sees himself as doing a series of rulings that will, on the one hand, grant anti-discrimination protections, and on the other hand, protect religious liberty. And that's an outcome that I, you know, I will, I will happily accept. But it's just you know it's it's another sign of a society that is in some that is sort of ruled by its lawyers in a way that has always I, I again I take the Tocqueville point it's always been very American to have very powerful lawyers but it's still a depressing place for our experiment to end up. 
Well, these are issues, obviously, that Americans care deeply about, so we'll be keeping a close eye on the Supreme Court. Meantime, Jesse, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. And I want to remind listeners that if they want to hear more of your thoughts, uh, you have a book out this year, Let the People Pick the President, uh, about the Electoral College and your belief that its time has passed. Thank you, Jesse. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks so much for having me. That's our show this week. Thanks for listening. The Argument is a production of the New York Times Opinion Section. The team includes Phoebe Lett, Lauren Kelly, Paula Schumann, and Pedro Rafael Rosado. Special thanks to Brad Fisher, Constanza Gallardo, and James T. Green. We'll see you next week. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.